0: We interrupt this broadcast to bring you the BritFlix FrightFest Preview Podcast 2016. Welcome to another BritFlix FrightFest Preview Podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and now I've got Paul Davis. Hello, Paul.
2: Hello, sir. How are
0: you? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. Now, you're not showing a film at Fright Fest, are you? You're you're launching a book, Beware the Moon. Do you want to give people a brief synopsis as to what that book's about?
2: Um, Well, uh, if you came to Fright Fest in 2009 and saw my documentary, uh, Beware the Moon... It's pretty much the same, but it's on a page this time. Uh, well, it's um, it's basically what happened is when I did the documentary on the making of an American wealth in London hmm. um, in two thousand and nine, um, I was actually negotiating a companion book deal even back then. Right. Okay. Um, I was dealing with a with a a huge uh, publisher who will remain unnamed, but um, they. One, they were interested in doing a tie-in for the DVD and Blu-ray release, mm-hmm. and by this point, um, you know, Universal were already kind of like locked on the marketing campaign. So they were like, "Well, we can't do that." So then the publisher were like, "Well, we're not interested either." So I just kind of put a pin in it, and, um, and it was always something that I wanted to go back to. Because even when we were doing the documentary, the, I, I was I was actually we were shooting two cuts. We were shooting what was going to be on the the DVD and the Blu-ray, yeah. and we were shooting like a forty-five minute version, which was gonna we were gonna hope to sell to like Channel Four or Film Four or or you know whoever would be interested in it, and we would have interviews with like UK. Uh, celebrity fans of the film. Okay. So we shot, we shot an interview with Edgar Wright. We shot an interview at the time with, um, I mean, he, he was a little bit more relevant at the time, but Justin Lee Collins mm-hmm. was in it. Um, we'd arranged interviews with Joe Cornish, um, a few other people. I think we were going to talk to Richard and Judy because apparently it was their first date movie. <laughs> um, so nice. that, that we had all these plans. But the thing was, once uh, Universal agreed that they were going to take it, they basically said, "Okay, stop. You know, stop anything else. Let's just we're going to concentrate on the DVD and Blu-ray version, and mm. that is going to be the version that will go out." So once they they kind of took ownership of it, that was it. I just it, it was my obligation to just finish what was going to be then, you know, the special feature on on the Blu-ray. Um, so I had all this excess material, um, and there was a lot of stuff. Um, You know, I mean, you see a lot of documentaries now that are like four and five hours long. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, I've I've seen, I've watched all eight hours of the Friday the Thirteenth
2: one. Yeah, which 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 is fun in parts, you know. But I, I, you know, and it's the same with Never Sleep Again. You know, they're great documentaries, Mm -hmm. very very well made. But I mean, especially with Friday the Thirteenth, once you get to kind of seven and eight and nine, it's kind of like, well, I don't care anymore. It's, it's like it's like when you go to the Prince Charles and, and do one of their all nighters. Once you hit seven, that's it. I've seen Jason lives now. I, I can I can nap for the rest of it. You know.
0: No, no, but, it, does, uh, it does it does look a bit like having the radio one by that that,
2: by that point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So because um, yeah, because yeah, I've no, I've never been a fan of like Friday seven onwards. Um, mm. But, um, but so yeah. what,
0: what, What's what with what you're launching then? What's 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 as in special for want of a better what's, word about what's going to happen? It's
2: it's very much the the complete chronicle of the making of American Wealth in London because as I said, there's a lot of stuff that that we that we wanted to put in the documentary but we just couldn't for time. Of you course. know, um, yeah, no, yeah, it's just everything. You know, it was it was all these really fun, quirky stories that that are fun and quirky but really didn't add anything to. You know the story. You yeah. know when you've got when you when you're pacing out like an hour and a half, ninety minute uh, documentary. You know, fun little anecdotal stuff like um, the 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 scene in American Wolf in London. Here we go. Spoiler spoiler warning for anybody who hasn't seen it. I
0: think we can, I... we, can we can be safe on uh, okay, 2016. Cool. So, on. so
2: the so the moment where um, the wolf jumps out of the uh, the cinema gate and bites the head off the inspector. In the documentary, there's a, there's a wonderful story where John Landis talks about um, a communication problem that he had with the, with the British crew who didn't know the US terminology of uh, a car's hood being the bonnet. So when John's directing them saying, bounce the head off the hood, everybody's looking at him like, you know, like he's speaking Martian, you know. <laughs> Uh, but it wasn't until he took the head and put it on the, on the bonnet, and everybody was like, oh, the bonnet, that's what you mean. So we, we put that in there, and then that's kind of where we ended it, and then we move on to the next thing. But, you know, we had, a, we had a whole story about how when they actually took a take and they bounced the, the, the head off the car, the head then rolled into the road, John yelled, cut, one of the bobbies uh, who was dressed as uh, um, one of the stuntmen who was dressed as a bobby like screamed, there's a car come in and John kind of spins around and goes, For God's sake, save the head. <laughs> so so three of these stuntmen dressed as policemen run out into the road, like stand in front of this car and like halt it with their hands out. Mm. And then this one guy dressed as a bobby comes up, picks up a severed head, and then waves the car along. You know, and this driver's sitting there with this <laughs> mouth gawping open at this guy holding Nothing it. to see,
0: nothing to see. Exactly, exactly.
2: <laughs> so, um, so let's just,
0: just, hold on a second, we've not, we should say, when When can people see you at Frightfest again, sorry, it's...
2: I, I will be there on Sunday the 28th at 10.30 in the morning, we're doing like a nice uh, uh, presentation about what you can expect from the book, because... Um, uh, there's there's, ton, there's tons of uh, brand new uh, images and, and things that I didn't have access to when we did Beware of the Moon like Rick Baker um scanned um, a, a ton of images that have never been published before especially for this book mm. um and some of the other makeup guys as well and um and I'm hoping that I'm going to have a few special guests from the movie uh, joining me and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the film um and, uh, you know, relay some of the, the anecdotes that, that you can find in the book that, uh, that weren't in the documentary.
0: Okay, okay. Now, I mean, when, when I did a poll on BritFlix for the best British horror film, mm-hmm. controversially, American Werewolf was number three. Okay. Controversial because there were, there, were, there were purists who came at me on social media for a short while to say it wasn't a British film.
2: Oh, it 100% is. And I clarify <laughs> that in the book. You do. John Landis yeah. in his own words says that it is a 100% British film.
0: Oh, it you've made made, with, you've made my day
2: now. It was made with <laughs> British money. Oh, 100%. They had to they had to work with uh, they had to cut a deal with British equity hmm. for the amount of American people that are actually on the cast and crew.
0: Well, I never, you see, I knew there was a reason for this podcast to happen, Paul.
2: There you go. I feel
0: like I should I could do my addendum now to the when we posted that and then try and find everybody on social media that that came at me and said, Why is that on the list?
2: Dude, to the point to the point where I actually went on the IMDB to deleted the for the country of origin.
0: So, so that
1: again so, so that now, again, sorry,
2: you
0: went you did that IMDB what, sorry?
2: I went on the IMDB yeah. and I deleted the because it has a on the country of origin on the IMDb page, it says UK/US. Right. I,
0: del-
2: I deleted the US with a right. citation saying this is a British film, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, if you go on the IMDb now, it just says UK.
0: And you are you arriving with signed copies, aren't you, of the book?
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. The book's actually going to be on sale for the entire weekend. Right. Um, the uh, the publishers are um, are a good bunch of folk called Dead Mouse Productions, who did the they they were the guys responsible for the uh, Hellraiser documentary Leviathan. Okay. Okay. Um, They've also got a documentary coming out on the making of the Fright Night franchise, uh, which I think is called You're So Cool, Brewster. Which is a fun little title for that, mm-hmm. um, and also the the book that they did prior to mine because this is the second in a series that they're going to do. Yeah, uh, these really nice limited edition, uh, thousand copies, exclusive hardbacks. Uh, the first one they did is on the making of Return of the Living Dead, uh, so so they will have copies of that on sale, and this will be the first uh, FrightFest will be the first time that you will be able to go to like a convention. That these guys do, and you will be able to buy a copy of Beware the Moon. So it's the first time that you will be able to actually buy one in hand rather than buy, you know, online, which is what a lot of people have done. In the pre order sales, um, have been insane.
0: Oh, nice. Book, Congratulations.
2: Absolutely insane. To the point where I was worried, you know, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I had to uh, message um, uh, the, the main guy at the, the publishing house that I've been, been dealing with, Carrie Smart, who's like the big producer over there. Yeah, um, worried that we would not have copies.
0: Oh, oh for, what, for, what for right oh, I see. You thought you were going to pre-sell all thousand.
2: No, no, no. We've got them because I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually sitting right in front of me are the um, of the little limited edition stickers that are going to go in the in, uh, in the inside cover that I've signed.
0: Okay, I've got you.
2: Um, yeah. So I'm still doing that. I'm still halfway through doing that.
0: Now, this you may have been asked this question a number of times. So, apologies if you have cast your mind back. Mm-hmm. To that first time you ever saw American Wealth in London, mm-hmm. how much did it capture your imagination to be talking about it now on the back of not just the documentary, but obviously now the book? Did it have that impact right away, or is it something that that grew for you?
2: Oh no, absolutely. I mean, um, it's, it's one of the things that I actually mentioned in my introduction. It's just a film that's kind of followed me throughout my life. Um, I first saw because um, I remember when I when I when I was. Doing this kind of stuff um, in two thousand and nine for the documentary, and I was asking, you know, I was being asked these kind of questions. Mm. But the thing is, I, I think my my memory is kind of like matured uh, the longer the longer it's been since then. Yeah, um, and I think I remember things a lot a lot clearer now because obviously when I'm writing an introduction to the book and I'm trying to put myself in uh put my own life in context with this film and why you know it means so much
1: hello,
2: hello. there hello.
0: we go why? Why it means, and then it cut out on me. So if you okay, yeah.
2: Please. So I so when 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 I was writing the book, yeah. um, In in you know, in addition to like doing a documentary, it's not about your involved your your love for the film or your passion for the film. It, you, you know, you're telling the story of the movie rather than your love for it. But when you're writing book, specifically when you're writing, you know, an intro that you that really. You know that's what it. That's what you have to do. You know you mm. have to explain. You know why me? Why am I the person that is giving you, you know, this information? Um, and so I had to think about it a lot more. So originally in 2009, I think I, I think I said, that, oh, I saw an American Wolf in London, and then it wasn't until I saw Michael Jackson's Thriller and the making of Thriller mm. that I kind of understood that you know this is all makeup and these are professional people. You know, people do this for a living. You know, um, but it turns out it was the other way around. Um, I saw Michael Jackson's Thriller in the making of, and then it was in the making of where Michael Jackson talks about how he first became aware of John Landis, and it was through seeing American Wealth in London. And there's a clip of the movie in the making of Thriller.
0: Oh, right. Okay. So
2: I saw that, and it was about a year later. And I even tracked down the original air date. Um, it was the, the British broadcast television premiere of American Wealth in London. It was on BBC One. And that was on the 15th of February, 1985. So we recorded that for TV. Yeah. And, and it was the Sunday morning afterwards that, that I sat down and watched it for the first time. I was three years old at this, at this point. Um, and my brother, who we were talking about uh, just before we went on the air, is, you know, he's seven years older than me. Um, he was he, I can remember this vividly, he was eating jam on toast. Um, and I just remember the moment where Jack first turns up in the in the hospital, and he had a bit of toast in his mouth, and I heard this noise of him gasping, and I turned around, and you just saw the toast like, just kind of falling out of his mouth, and he put the plate down and ran out of the room. Um, so it scared him a lot more than it did me. You know, again, I, I at this point I just I understood that this monster was made by Rick Baker,
0: mm.
2: you know, and. These these actors are being told what to do by John Landis. You know, it was, it was I couldn't, and and that's kind of sad in a way. But as a child, knowing that I couldn't separate the the practicality from the actual storyline, you know, and it was um, and it was because of that that you know I could I could watch The Exorcist age nine, you know, tracking down a, a pre certificate. Uh, okay. VHS, the advantage of, of having an older brother, I might add. Um,
0: yeah, and I was the older brother, so I was doing the tracking.
2: There we go, there we go. And this is the thing, when you still had the little independent chains, there was always a person that still had a copy under the counter.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we were
2: just fortunate that my brother knew one of those people, so we got it. Um, and The Exorcist had zero effect, other than the fact that I thought it was a fun special effects movie. About a girl who floats around her room and her head spins around, and she throws up on people.
0: So you, you, know, were, what, you were watching a film, constantly imagining the gaffer and the electrician. About eight well, not, feet away not to from that the
2: extent, not not to that extent. But okay, I knew okay. that there was a director who told them what to do, and I knew that the monster was made by a makeup artist, and I that it so. wasn't You know, so I couldn't, you know, I couldn't kind of get into that sense of wonderment and imagination that a story was being told before my eyes, you know.
0: So when, uh, when did you transition into your sort of love of it being about the actual film itself, not just the making of well,
2: it? Well, um, I, I had several years where um, I... You know, I, I don't think I even thought about the film. Um, I think it was around the time where I, I started kind of independently going out and buying VHSs for myself. You know, I was yeah. about 16 or 17. Right. Um, and I went into, like, a Virgin Mega store in Croydon, and I saw a copy there for four ninety nine, so I bought it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, that was probably the first time I'd seen it since I was very, very young. Okay. Uh, and enjoyed it just as much. Um, but it wasn't until... Um, I used to be a staff writer over at Horrorhound magazine, Right. which is uh, based out of um, Cincinnati, Ohio, and I was the only Brit on the staff. Um, and but at that point, I'd already kind of I was doing these really in-depth retrospective articles on movies that was that happened to be celebrating an anniversary that year. Oh, yeah. um, and an American in two thousand six, American Wealth in London came up, and they they offered it to me because you know. Oh, you live there. You can do this. <laughs> um, so I was like, okay. Um, so I was looking. I was trying to track down like tons of reference materials, and um, well, I had I had access to David Norton, but that was really it mm-hmm. in terms of like trying to get new interviews. Um, and even then, it was like you know you're trying to do interviews over email, and you get like one sentence replies. It really you know wasn't really anything worthwhile. And then I went back to the 2001 uh, DVD release and I was looking at all the stuff on there, and there really wasn't a lot lot on it. You know, I think there were two, there was an interview with Landis, an interview with Rick Baker, a couple of outtakes, and uh, the commentary with uh, David Norton and Griffin Dunn. Hmm. And that was it. So, you know, trying to find any kind of fun, anecdotal information that I could put into this thing was very uh, few and far between. and at this point, you know, DVD releases were coming out with these really cool, in-depth, retrospective documentaries. Like, I think, the you know, The Evil Dead had one at that point. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Shocking Truth, was, was already around. Uh, Fear of God, uh, the documentary on The Exorcist. Um, so, it you know, it just kind of puzzled me why An American Wealth in London, which, you know, is, is a movie that a lot of people love, and it's groundbreaking for its special effects... Mm alone you know, in in the fact that Rick Baker was the first person to win uh, uh, an Oscar specifically for Special Makeup. It was the first time that that became a category. And it Mm. was because of that film. Um, And I just didn't understand why this film kind of didn't have that treatment and that love. And then at that point, it was like the light bulb went off and I was like, hey, you know what? The Horror Hound guys are right. I do live here. And about about 70% of the cast and crew are here. You know, so and and after that, it was really just a chain of events that that really just were very strange. It was like it, it was almost as though everything that led to the production of Beware the Moon um, was quite literally um, right
0: place, right time. So, how did you crack the nut of sort of that first interview with Landis then?
2: Well, Landis, it, it was interesting because I'd already started, um, putting the feelers out with some of the other people before I even, like, thought about getting in touch with John Landis. Okay. You know, because, in, you know, like, like being, um, I guess I was like 25 years old at the time, um, you know, being this kid in, in South London with little to no contacts in the film biz, you know, Landis to me was still a world away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still, I still kind of had that, um, that motivation to at least start emailing and cold calling agents for the people that were at least based over here. Um, and the first person, one of the first people that we actually got on board and agreed to do it was Jenny Agatha. So her immediately, that was like, a, oh, wow. Okay, so it looks like we're actually going to do this thing.
0: Yeah, you're in the Premier League then, aren't you? Really exactly. Close. You know, she
2: says yes, and, and then you can start emailing and calling other people saying, well, we've already got Jenny Agatha, You know, mm-hmm. that's a huge name that you can already kind of, you know, pun around. Um, so we start, we, we literally, we, we were emailing and, and calling, as meant literally, I was going through the IMDb cast and credits list, just trying to get everybody um, and, uh, quite quickly, we got Jenny Agatha, John Wood, Ryan, David Schofield, um, uh, David Tringham, who was the first AD, he was a hell of a character. Hmm. Um, I had a friend of mine, uh, well, he's, he's a friend of mine now, but at the time I got a message, uh, through MySpace from an artist called Mike Hill, who makes these extraordinary, um, statues of monsters and stuff like that in fact the, uh, the exhibit that Guillermo del Toro is touring with actually has some of Mike's work in it um, there's a very famous statue actually that people always um, uh, miscredit for actually being a photo from Frankenstein it's, uh, it's a statue of Jack Pierce making up Boris Karloff where he's got his top off and he's holding a little uh, mug of tea Right. That's, a st- <laughs> yeah, that's that's not an actual still from from behind the scenes of Frankenstein, that's just someone's put a black and white filter on Mike's statue. Get out!
0: Of town. That's
2: how that's how real his. That's is. amazing. Um. So so yeah, he messaged me randomly and said, "Look, I'm I'm an artist. I live out in L.A. I'm from the U.K. I know Rick. Would you like me to put you in touch with him?" It's like, yes, please. <laughs> so um. So he arranged everything with with Rick. And by this point, it was kind of like, okay, I guess I really need to stop putting it off and try to reach out to John Landis. Hmm. So um, I managed to get in touch with Mick Garris, who, of course, is the producer of Masters of Horror, you know, writer and director of, of several uh, horror movies of his own, Critics hmm. 2, he wrote Hocus Pocus, he did a lot of the, the, the Stephen King miniseries adaptations like The Shining, um I got his info through the Guys at Horror Hound and um I just asked Mick uh, you know, if I send an email composed to John, could you forward it to me? And he said, Yeah, absolutely. Um which is actually the reason why um the 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 connection that Landis and Garris have and know, and me knowing that he would be the good person the right person to go to yeah. is the reason that Mick has actually written the foreword for, for the book. Ah, okay. Um, so, so I'm really happy that, that you know I, I kind of got him involved in the book as well because he was there right at the beginning uh, for Beware the Moon. Um, so, Mick sent off the email, and about three days later, John's name appears in my inbox, and at that point, I'm cacking my pants. I haven't even read it yet. You know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kind of half, I'm kind of half cacking my pants and half doing that thing that Homer Simpson does when he gets down on the floor and starts spinning around in a circle. <laughs> Um, so then I finally read it and John was, um, was very nice. He was very polite. He's, you know, he says, I'm very flattered that you want to make this documentary on, on American wealth in London, but I have two questions. A, you know, what do you expect to do with it? Um, and B, you don't own the rights, you know, universal own it. Um, and I just kind of went back at him with this, well, yeah, I, you know, it'll be all right on the night, governor, kind of attitude, mm. um, which I later found out, uh, that he was actually quite charmed by that, because he said that was the attitude of every single crew member on an American Werewolf in London.
0: So this is your 25-year-old self did this, then, that's your 20? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Naivety wins okay.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And I'd already kind of been doing this with the people that I was, um you know cold calling and emailing anyway saying oh it's going to be on the blu-ray and it's going to be on TV and I was kind of, I didn't have any kind of deal in place I was just you know getting it together and then hoping for the best mm. um, which I don't recommend to <laughs> any documentary filmmaker for the record um, but yeah so what happened is um, John then gave me the email address for the person that I needed to speak to at Universal um, and so I sent them an email uh, again, just cacking myself the entire time, you know, hoping I'm saying the right things, and that I'm being charming enough, and all this kind of stuff, and then I just, again, I just got like a, a one-sentence reply, which was like, we have no interest in re-releasing an American World in London on DVD. So I was like, oh. <laughs> uh, wow. Um, what now? You know, and by this point, we already had dates locked with Jenny Ag- to all these people, you know. Um, so I ended up... The, um, the licensing department at Universal and asking them how much it would cost me <laughs> hypothetically um, to license uh, and I, I think I pulled out like a number like 18 minutes of footage uh, from an American Wealth in London to put in a potential making of documentary and they came back with a figure that was something around like 680 thousand dollars
0: just six hundred eighty thousand dollars. It was, it was <laughs> insane. You know,
2: it was, you know, it was a lot of money. It was a lot of like an insane amount of money. Um,
0: is is the challenge there? Because I mean, obviously, fair use is as far as a story you're telling is one thing, but because the the story you're telling is about something with intellectual property, yeah, is that is that, is that the stopping thing? Because obviously, no, if I made a documentary about you. Yeah, then, yeah then, then
2: it's fine. You know, we, we can shoot footage of me all day. Yeah. I yeah. own that footage, and it's fine. They can use it. But yeah. the problem is, with, with, an, with an American Wealth in London, the fact that Universal owned it, and because of the way that I envisioned the, the story that I wanted to tell, and the way that I wanted to tell the making of the story, mm-hmm. like, for example, like I wanted Rick Baker to to go through the, the transformation, you know, step by step, each effect explained. Mm. And you can't do that without having...
0: The film, for, the foot, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, film yeah, yeah, to, course, to yeah. show,
2: and, you know, for for Rick to be like kind of commentating over. because yeah, so we've all
0: seen those documentaries where you go, they haven't got the rights, have they?
2: Exactly, I mean,
0: exactly. And it kind of loses you, doesn't it, I, as an audience?
2: Yeah, and and even and you know, and even more so now. I mean, you're seeing documentaries that are getting away with using the 15 second rule, you know, yeah. and even then, that's kind of jarring because you can tell that that you, because you, once you get. Once you see like a certain amount of clips in the documentary, you very you very quickly realise that they are all the same length. Uh, I've, never,
0: I've never noticed <laughs> well, that, but yeah, now you say it.
2: Um, so, so yeah, so I, I knew again, like when when that when that large amount of money came back, um, the, the quote from the licensing people, I knew I was screwed. You know, I, I wouldn't be able to get it on a DVD for free, and I couldn't afford to to to, to license
0: it. So, um, so how did how did Muhammad get to the mountain, or did the mountain go? Well, to Well, yeah, the, the
2: the 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 really nice person that I then spoke to, excuse my squeaky chair, <laughs> um, then said, uh, well, "What is it you're making? You know, tell me what's what's your pitch?" And and I said, "Well, you know, I'm a young filmmaker from the UK. I've never made a movie before." I love an American Wealth in London. I think it's very deserving of a of a really in depth retrospective documentary. And and she was like, "Oh, I love that movie too. I agree with you." I was like, "Thank you." <laughs> That's very <laughs> nice of you. <laughs> yeah. And and she was like, "Why will will home video not take it?" And and I said, "Well, no. I've, I've I've already spoken to them, and they said no. You know. And I've got all these interviews lined up, and I started reeling off names, and she was like, "And they don't want this? Are they nuts?" <laughs> And, she, and she, was like, she was like, I tell you what, I tell you what, give me 30 minutes, give me your email address, I'll go talk to them. So I was like, okay. So I, I gave her my email address, um, not expecting to hear anything back. I thought it was the nicest, am I allowed to swear on this?
0: Yes, you are. Yes.
2: I thought it was the nicest shit sandwich I'd ever been served.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The polite so way, of, it, the politest way of saying no. With yeah,
2: basically. Um, so, I, you know, we ended the call and... You know, who'd have thought? Thirty minutes later, I got an email um, from that young lady, and I wish for the life of me I remembered her name, um, because you know I would. I, the special thanks at the back of her book would just be her name in the biggest lettering, like over an entire page. Um, but uh, yeah, she came back thirty minutes later with an address, and it just said, "Send it here when it's finished."
0: Get out of town.
2: And um, I was, like, hyperventilating at this point. I didn't... You know, I I was half ecstatic and half wanted to cry at this point. Um, And all I did was I just pressed the forward button and put John's address in, um, you know, send to. And uh, within 10 minutes, he replied, saying, Great, I'll be in London next week. Um, Let's meet up. So... So that was that. We met with him in London. We showed him a little five-minute reel that we'd cut together. And uh, one memory that I will that I will always hold dearly, I'll never forget, uh, we were in a, a tiny little um, cafe in Sloan Square, hmm. and uh, he was watching the, the little five-minute reel that we cut together on a MacBook, and he had little iPod headphones in. Hmm. Uh, like This is the first time that I'm seeing John Landis in person. So is the know? first
0: time you've met him, and he's now yeah. sat with you? Yeah, MacBook yeah, yeah.
2: You know, so I'm kind of, you know, I, I say this a lot, but you know, you're, you're going to learn one thing throughout the production of, of Beware the Moon. I cacked my pants a lot. This was another. This was another time. Um, you know, just knowing that this was the guy that tickled Michael Jackson's feet um, in the making of thriller. You know, I was like, you know, damn, this is. It was. It was. It was unreal to me. It was a complete. It was another world, and here it was in front of me. You know. Um just watching that bearded jaw drop as he was seeing like what we'd already done. Um, and he, when it was what, finished, of
0: interest, what was he, what What were, What was those five minutes? You did we, we'd
2: done, we'd done about three or four interviews at that point. Okay. Um, so we cut those together and we'd already done some of the stuff where I went on location
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, back to the original locations where we matched some of the shots from the movie where I was kind of doing my really terrible Mark Kermode impression. Um, <laughs> And, um, and so we were showing him all those all those bits, kind of cut together in a, in a you know in the, in the most coherent way that we could with what little we had. Um, and he turned to me when it was finished, and he, and he was like, "This is this is gold, you know you you know you're giving <laughs> to, to to quote Hot Fuzz, you know you're you're giving oh no wait it's Shaun of the Dead isn't it slice of fried gold yeah it's Shaun of the Dead oh got that one wrong um, yeah he, he said Universal are going to absolutely be stupid to say no to this. Um, so from that point, it was kind of like John like clapped his hands together. Like, right. Who do you need? I was like, well, um, I've been in touch with David Norton. He hasn't been too receptive. Um, still trying to, I'm still waiting on Griffin Dunn with his assistant all that kind of stuff. But you know, we're, we're talking and he wants to do it. Um, so John actually then emailed David Norton and said, look, we're all doing it. You know, come on, join us. You know, it's a celebration. So then David like emailed me and was like, um, Okay, I'm doing a convention in Florida in October. If you guys want to kind of come out to that, um, and that was great for us because the last two interviews we needed to do were actually the two lead boys. It was David and Griffin.
0: Right.
2: So, um, and because David uh, because Griffin was in New York, we figured we could just do a, a quick little round trip. We'll do Florida, get David in the can, and then overnight we'll go over to New York, do Griffin, and literally just do that within like a three day. Kind of um, window, and we, that's exactly what we did. Those, those were the last two that we filmed. Um, that, so that was in October, I think. The, la- the very last things that we filmed uh, was was around November time, November two thousand seven, because production started on it in March two thousand seven, and we shot all the way through to the end of November. Um, and um, yeah, you know, everybody was just every. The thing I remember mostly is that not not a single person had a bad thing to say about working on that movie.
0: Okay.
2: Everybody just remembers working on that film with such fondness, working with John with such f- fondness and everybody referred to him you, everybody used the same word, you know, energy. He was just a ball of energy and still is. You know, um and hey, uh,
0: how much love is it how much love is there for the film in the US? Is it is it as, is it in the it, horror canon, there as, as much as it is here? It, it,
2: it is, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, very, much, um, it's very much high regarded. Um, yeah. and, and the thing that's interesting to me um, is because of the time in John's career that the film came out, yeah. it's often regarded by film folk as a failure. You know, in in the regard that prior to that, you know, John had monster hits with the Kentucky Fried movie Animal House and the Blues Brothers. Right. And it was the fact that those three were so big that he actually then had the clout to go and make an American Werewolf in London. Mm. Um, because he'd written it in 1969. I mean, everybody knows the story about him in Yugoslavia witnessing the the funeral. Uh, and that inspired him to actually write the script while he was on Set or while he was on the set of Kelly's Heroes as a production assistant. Um, so he wrote the script when he was 19 years old and was constantly trying to get it made. Um, in that period between 1969 and 1981, um, uh, it got him writing jobs. You know, he was he was hired to write on the Spy Who Loved Me because uh, Cubby Broccoli loved the script for An American Wealth in London. Wow. Um, And, uh, and yeah, but it wasn't, but no studio would back it. No studio would back it whatsoever. And even after the blues brothers, um, John, John had a, an obligation to universal to give them first look on anything that he was doing. Uh, and they read the script for an American wealth in London. And and he was like hell bent that it was going to be his next film by this point. He put it off for too long. He was now the biggest comedy director in the, in, in Hollywood. Hmm. He was going to make his movie, you know? And so he gave it to uh, Sid Sheinberg, Universal, and they just didn't like the script.
0: They does, didn't, does, yeah. does, he, does he tell you, uh, did he, I presume he told you, what, what was the stumbling block for him? Because it's hard to imagine not making it. It's a bit like
2: Absolutely. A bit like... Well, he, he always got the same two, two comments. And funnily enough, as irony would have it, you know how I say that this movie has followed me throughout my life. Yeah. I'm actually going through the same stumbling blocks in my own film career that John went through with an American wealth in London. And it was, um, it, he always got the same feedback that the script was either too funny to be a horror film or it was too scary to be a comedy. They couldn't get that. It could be both, you know? Um, and, and and nobody did. It very nearly got made at paramount after the blues brothers. Um, Don Simpson, who was, uh, who was there at the time, loved the script but then when, the, when it went up the ladder to Barry Diller, he said, no, <laughs> we're not making this. Mm. So that's why John then kind of said, okay, fuck it. You know, we will do this as a negative pickup. We will, you know, George Falsey will produce the movie. We'll go and find financiers. And that's when Polygram Pictures got involved. Um, and the idea was that they would go to London and use a tax incentive at the time, which was uh, the E.D. plan.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, and that was a tax incentive in which the producer got a cut of the box office. You know, um, and an American wealth in London was actually the very last E.D. picture made in the U.K.
0: That was the pound on the ticket, wasn't it? From yes, absolutely, Absolutely. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, so it wasn't, you know, it was, it was, it was directly after an American Werewolf in London that that Margaret Thatcher shut down the um, the 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 ED plan. So, um, so that is again, you know, the ED plan being a British tax incentive. An American Werewolf London was made with ED money. So it's
0: <laughs> a British film. You I, know. I'm satisfied with that, Absolutely. and I always was, but now, you know, now I feel assured.
2: Because everybody talks about Universal's involvement, and um, and this is another great story that Landis tells. Hmm. Because uh, one of the things that, that I really go into on Beware the Moon, uh, the book, hmm. that I didn't get to do in the documentary, because it's not really... Something that kind of fits a documentary, but in a book, because you've got all that space to expand your story, Mm. uh, it was perfect for. There was so much more to tell in the development and the pre-production of An American World in London. In the documentary, it's far too neat, but the development and the pre-production was anything but neat.
0: Are you saying yeah. what in preparation for those fantastic special effects, or just the financing
2: of it? Well, the financing is one, and the special effect—you you actually nailed both areas okay. <laughs> that were that were actually quite um, uh, quite an undertaking for for at that time. Okay, um, and and that was the that was the great thing uh, about being able to speak to more members of Rick's original makeup crew because mm. in the documentary, I think I spoke to two, two or three. Um, now I've spoken... In the book, I've spoken to all but two of them. So that's about six or seven mm. of Rick's original crew wow. um, who really go into detail about what they went through.
0: I um, mean, is, is there is there a genuine legacy through film now of that special effects and how it became the benchmark? Or oh, it,
2: absolutely. I mean, you know, well, it was always and and again, it's one of the things that we go we kind of go into in the book, but yeah. not to too much detail. It was the um who came up with the change o mechanisms first, which is what you know Rick Rick baker named the these things they were that, so you had like the the face stretches that was called a change o head where okay. the hand stretches that was called a change o hand mm. you know um basically what had happened is Rick. Um, because it took John so such a long time to get the money to make an American one in London. You know, John and Rick met in 1971 on John's first film schlock. And even then he showed Rick the script and said, figure out how to do this stuff. You know, and they were both like, <laughs> and they were both like 20 years old, you know, Rick's gluing a, a gorilla <laughs> suit to John and John's talking about these like, amazing special effects where you're going to see bones crack and you know you're going to see a whole body change. So between 1971 and 1981, Rick had a long time to figure out how to do this stuff. But the thing is, while he was still while while he did his part, you know, he did figure out how to do all these effects. Mm. And he you know, he worked with Dick Smith uh, uncredited on The Exorcist. He was Dick Smith's assistant on The Exorcist. So, seeing all the stuff that Dick was doing with bladders and, um, you know, uh, bladder, bladder uh, balloons under latex and all that kind of stuff, he figured, well, you know, I can kind of develop, research this and develop it a little bit more and, and put it into like kind of werewolf effects. So, as things would have it, you know, Rick had been waiting for such a long time. And then he gets a call out of the blue from Joe Dante and Mike Fennell who say, hey, we're doing the howling. Do you want to do the effects? <laughs> Rick's like, Oh, yes, please. I've got all these transformation ideas and I want to use them, you know? Um, And then, literally, six weeks later, John calls up Rick and says, Hey, we got the money for an American Well. So, yeah, so six weeks after. uh, uh, Rick Baker gets the call from Joe Dante, "My Flaggist, and calls, Z. and Rick's just kind of like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know? um, he's like, I'm, I'm already doing this werewolf movie for Joe Dante, and John went ballistic. You know, not only ballistic, that Rick was working on it, but that he'd already told them what he was going to do. You know? So um, the agreement was, and um, it didn't end, brilliantly, you know, basically Rick was working on it with Rob Botine. who was his protege yeah. at the time and Rick uh, basically took Rob under his wing as a 16 year old kid who turned up on Rick's doorstep and lived in his garage for, I don't know how long but he, he was Rick's assistant on all those early films, and in fact did um, you know Rick Baker did a lot of the reshoot Cantina masks for Star Wars? No I didn't, no he did a lot of the reshoot Cantina masks for Star Wars, and I only, found out, I only found out, actually, in doing this book, that Rob Boteen is actually the really tall member of the Cantina Band.
0: Right, okay.
2: <laughs> which I had no idea. I was like, oh my god, that's the guy who did the effects for the
0: thing in that mask. So. <laughs> I'm gonna straight after this call. I've got people to tell that fact to you now.
2: <laughs> well, there we go. But it's, but it's like, and, and I thought, well, of course he was doing that kind of stuff because he also played Blake, the the ghost pirate in the fog. Really? Yeah, yeah. He literally got the job because he found out that John Carpenter was doing the thing. So he knew Dean Kundi. Rob Bottin knew um, Dean Kundi and wow. asked him if he could introduce him to John Carpenter. Right. And um, they were prepping on the fog at this time. And um, uh, I think uh, Rob sat in on a meeting and uh, they were talking about the pirate ghost. And Rob just kind of blurted out, Oh, I'll, I can play that for you. And John looked at him and said, Stand up. And Rob stood up. He's like six foot five. Right. And he was like, Great, you got the part. <laughs> so, wow. which actually, you know what? I do creature suit performing as well. I can't act for shit. People just see my size and go, Yep, you got the job. So,
0: well, look. Yeah. The other thing, the other thing I wanted to ask before we conclude is, what what do you think? And given you've spent so much time with this movie, um, special because ef- special effects is 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 I a, a, a say only a scene, but obviously the legacy of it is is massive in terms yeah. of what people then went on to do with practical effects. But but the film is an experience, isn't it? And and I was the, when when you were talking before about why people didn't like the script, I, I, I found myself having the answer to my question answered because, you know, what is the enduring thing about it? And for me, it is the fact that it is funny and it mm-hmm. is damn scary. I mean, those, yeah. those Nazi, whatever they are, that the come in his, yeah. his nightmare, that, when I was a kid, stayed with me far too long, you know. Right. Along with when Jason comes out of the water at the end of the first Friday of the 13th, my 11-year-old brain was having lots of trouble computing all that. And obviously, in the in the tonally, in America Wealth in London, the Nazi demons take it somewhere else, don't they?
2: Absolutely, I, I think actually because one of the, one of the things that's re- that I really wanted to do, you know how I mentioned like I wanted to have this forty five minute cut of the documentary, yeah, which had people like Edgar Wright and stuff talking about their love for the film. Mm. Well, I actually dedicated a chapter which is just full of directors, filmmakers, writers, and, and other people that have that have been influenced by an American wealth in London, there was an entire chapter where they, they've given me their own like quotes and their, and like a paragraph on why they love the film.
1: Right.
0: Okay.
2: And, um, and one of the people that I spoke to, um, was Max Landis, you know, because he's a screenwriter and, and it was a film that his, that it was like the first film that his dad wrote that, um, that he does the way he wrote, directed and produced. So I thought from a screenwriting uh, standpoint, it would be interesting to get Max's viewpoint on the film. Yeah. And he actually... And I'm glad I did, because he absolutely nails it. In which he says, what's endearing and very strange, um, but also encapsulating about an American wealth in London is that it is a film in which things just keep happening and then it ends. Which is spot on. Mm. It really is. It, re- you know, it, it doesn't have like a, it doesn't have a, a traditional Lydian narrative of kind of a beginning, middle, end. It's kind of beginning. The rest of the movie is a middle, and then it's finished.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's, it's actually an a example of just continual rise in action, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, you, your are as an audience, you struggle to keep up because you're like going, so where's this heading?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, and that. And that, that, and that's what that for me is. What makes it such a great film is because it is it. it it's almost as though the movie doesn't even know where it's going.
0: Yeah, no, I, I totally
2: agree. so so. You know, God help anybody watching it who thinks they know where it's going.
0: Indeed. Well, let, let's let's give people some maturity then. So, remind us, when, when can people come and see you and talk about the book at breakfast this year? Well, the,
2: the book will be, as I said, the book will be on sale all weekend. Cool. Um, and
0: that's the signed limited edition. That is back. the signed
2: limited edition. But I will be there uh, in person from about 10... 30, well, my, my panel is at 10.30 um, in the morning on August the 28th. And uh, I'll have some... Uh, some special guests from the movie with me, um, and also because, like, like I mentioned, like the the signatures in the book are like these little limited edition stickers mm-hmm. that are in the um, that are in the inside cover. Uh, I'll be on if anybody wants their copies of the book personalised. I will happily do that. So fantastic!
0: Well, well thank you very much for giving us your time on the Breakfast podcast, Paul.
2: Nice, no, Stuart, thank you. I'm, I'm glad we, we finally got to do this.
0: Indeed, indeed. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes. Okay? <laughs> hey? What's going on? If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes. And you'll get the next episode right after we release it.
1: Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to stream from on the website. This has been a BritFlix Fest Preview Podcast 2016